0: You're listening to a Better Mousetrap podcast. I'm your host, Marcos Dinnerstein. Every week, I bring you an important player in New York City's tech scene, and maybe as important, I also shine a light on the newest players. What each of them does matters. So uh, thank you, David Ryan-Polger, for joining me today. Glad to be here. Uh, I noticed that you followed my podcast, and we've been kind of playing a tag trying to connect over the- that, we,
1: that we have, you know, and that's that's one of the benefits. We always talk about some of the downsides lately of, of social media, but I think one of the benefits is the kind of interconnectedness of a lot of folks that you say, wow, they're doing interesting things. They can connect on a greater level. And I think uh, you and I have, have been kind of circling each other for, for like you said the last couple of months and, and now I'm, you know I'm, I'm thrilled to be on your, your show to kind of talk about uh, some of the things that, that I'm working on or just just in general uh, the, the kind of ecosystem for kind of New York City tech uh, and then kind of on a larger stage as well.
0: Yeah awesome. So you describe yourself and are described as a tech ethicist. Yes what was your path to tech ethnicity? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, with, with tech ethicists,
1: uh, which has been kind of a, a growing kind of space, which has gone from basically zero to, to now kind of actually having uh, a lot of traction. Uh, there was even, uh, a, a company recently, uh, came out with saying that an AI ethicist might be one of the top jobs, uh, in the next couple, couple years. Uh, my path is, uh, my background is as an attorney and college professor. Uh, it seems like a lot of people who are kind of in the space of tech ethics either have a background in law or a background in in philosophy. Uh, so you can come about it from different perspectives. Uh, although, you know, sometimes people scratch their head and say, wow, you know, I'm surprised that, that you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, attorneys that are involved in law. But it really shouldn't be that surprising because when you're looking at Uh, let's say, an ethical code that a lot of people are talking about for data scientists uh, specifically, it's usually uh, professions like doctors and lawyers that people are pointing to to say those are professions that went from being pretty loosely organized, especially if you're talking about doctors, right? Think Think about doctors being considered like saw doctors. Uh, and, and some of the kind of scandalous past of, of grave grave robbing and things of that, where they say, wait, we need to inject more kind of ethics, that, that something like law and something like medicine have profound impact on society at large, uh, and especially can can alter somebody's, uh, some you know, the, their life, their livelihood. And I think it's the same thing with, with technology. We're realizing that uh, it, it's not just, you know, a, a simple tool that's creating the, the tech that we're creating, the, the apps that we download on our phone, they're affecting how we live, love, learn, and even die. They alter the human condition. So I think uh, it behooves us to to actually increase the amount of thoughtfulness that we have in this, this topic. Uh, so for my own personal path, uh, I was kind of in early, I'd say about 2012, where I was kind of, Talking a lot more about the uh, the impact of social media and technology from an ethical, legal, and emotional perspective. And at first, when I was doing you know uh, media, uh, they would kind of scratch their head and say, "Well, well, wait a minute. Like, are, are you are you a, the gadget guy? You know, if I was doing like a lifestyle show, and I said, No, no, no I'm not talking about." What the newest iPhone entails. I'm talking about how the iPhone impacts our ability to to talk to one another. How it might impact uh, anxiety or something like that. How social media might alter how we compare to to one another. How it might you know have something like uh, fear of missing out, FOMO. Uh, so it, it was on kind of that that deeper level. And I and I think now, uh, especially after Cambridge Analytica, there's been a far greater appreciation of saying. Technology is so important to society. It's so important to the human condition, and it's and it's essential to, frankly, a thriving democracy, as we, we've certainly seen with, with spreading <laughs> the spreading of misinformation. So it, it also says wait a minute. We cannot leave this topic solely up to technologists. So, so I'm thrilled that that we're trying to promote technologists to have a greater kind of ethical uh, guidelines or maybe a stronger stronger kind of moral code or compass. But it's, it, I really think, uh, and I and I'm a huge advocate of saying that technology is not it should not just be left up to the technologist. it is so important what we're creating that it needs to it needs to come about it from so many different perspectives we really need to have uh, <laughs> philosophers and psychologists and, and and so many different kind of folks involved so I, I meet a lot of people lately who, especially college students, who are saying, wait, I'm, I'm a double major. I'm CS and philosophy. And I'm like, that's great. That's, is. Where the, that's where the future's headed. The future is not in a discipline. And that's where like MIT, they recently announced this, this big uh, spend of kind of this transdisciplinary program that they're, they're launching. And that, I think, you know, I was like, all right, that's exactly what we need here. We need to think transdisciplinary. We need to think all of these different specialties, because the thing is, like the last couple of years when we've seen some of these scandals, specifically in social media, what is surprising is if you have somebody like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg and they say, you know what, I was a little, uh, I was a little taken aback. I was, I was shocked by the way things worked out. Well, if we take that at face value and, and say, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe that statement. Well, if we believe that statement, that's actually not a good thing because that's also saying that if they were surprised by the, the way that this has been flipped around, then that also means that they did not staff their team properly. They did not staff their team with people who who had the authority and the wherewithal to say, whoa, whoa, whoa how is this going to be abused? How can we think about the, the privacy concerns for, for what we're doing? Uh, how, could, how could somebody pervert the system? Because the problem is, is that technologists who are creating something, as a creator, you are naturally biased towards thinking that everybody, one, is going to love what you're creating, but two, that everybody is going to use it as described, right? If you say, okay, here's, what, here's how you use my tool, But the problem is, you need to have folks that are saying, "Okay, that's how you are uh, creating, and that's how you're intending." But what are the unintended consequences? How is this going to be used when when it goes from from uh, New York City to an authoritarian government? Right? What we're creating in a in, in the United States. does not stay within the United States. So we, we need to have kind of a global perspective and we need to have a transdisciplinary perspective. And that that's frankly my, my life's work right now. That, that's, that's kind of what I focus on.
0: So it's, it seemed that um, to prevent the kind of poor decisions that mm-hmm. you talk about, we're talking about diversity yes. in the intellectual and cultural sense of that.
1: We, we certainly are. And, and I think what's also going to happen, uh, it, it's kind of hard to imagine now, but I really think there's going to have to be some quasi-governmental uh, tech kind of hybrid. Uh, I recently uh, started you know, getting in touch with a, with a group out of D.C., and uh, Silicon Valley called the bridge. And what they do is they uh, bring together technologists and policymakers and politicians. I thought, That's exactly, again, what we need to be doing. We need to be bringing these, these folks to the same table because they're not always, they're not always kind of at this, this the same space to say, okay, how can we share knowledge? How can we find best best practices? Uh, you know, I recently saw the, the announcement with, with, with Facebook saying, okay, maybe we're going to put together some kind of board that might have some, like the, the Supreme Court idea that Zuckerberg uh, an, announced uh, last April on, on Vox with, with Ezra Klein on uh, his podcast. I mean, those are actually interesting ideas. I mean, I know some people push back on it, but I really thought, well, you know, that's a grown up idea in saying that these issues are, are not simple. A lot of times we, we point towards large tech companies that we say, God, they, they just need to do better. Well, yes, that's true. But OK, now let's be real about it. How are we going to improve that? So right now, you know, the last couple of years, I think it's been the awareness stage. So people are aware that the status quo is not frankly working, but now is the tougher part and the tougher part is actually coming up with, with solutions to fix it. So I like to, to think that it's all of the parties, all those stakeholder groups that are going to get more involved. You have consumers or users that are getting savvier about uh, privacy, about uh, you know, how they're using technology, but you also have governmental bodies, especially in the United States, their legislative body has, has, has frankly been asleep at the wheel I mean, if you really think about it, right, if you ask the uh, people in tech, uh, what's the most consequential law, they'll say, oh, well, I don't know, you know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, right? Well, think about that. The most consequential law that's, that's impacting social media and major platforms was written before the founding of Google and, and years before, uh, you know, the founding of, of Facebook in in a, in a Harvard dorm room, right? So that's, that's actually kind of embarrassing and, so I, and we're I think tra-
0: we're yeah. trailing. We're, it's very troubling we're, well no i say we're trailing we're, uh, yes, europe for the gdpr mm-hmm. uh, they're much more proactive in that respect than we are
1: well and what's interesting about that since you bring up gdpr is before we always assume that well yeah that's just the europeans and and they have dramatic differences from a historical background about how they treat issues like privacy and yes that's true However, I think a lot of Americans have been looking over to Europe and say, well, wait a minute, if they're able to be more proactive and carve out different societal rights for individual users, that we as Americans are, frankly, I mean, yes, it's it's more convoluted than, than the American system would be, but... It's also something that we're we're kind of jealous of. We're saying, well, wait a minute, if they if they had the right to to be forgotten, let's say, or if they have GDPR, well, well, then can we do something like that? And and that's why you you have seen uh, California uh, being pushed ahead with a uh, with a law that that mimics a lot of what what, what GDPR kind of laid out. The, the main part with it really is. We need more transparency. And we even saw that recently with the the latest uh, kind of kind of scandal with, with with Facebook, where, yeah, it wasn't a lot of teenagers downloading the, the research app, but it was you know a certain amount of, of teenagers. and people kind of pointing out, well, wait a minute, there, there's something wrong if if all of a sudden we say, yeah, but you you had to read the Terms of service and you you, you gave your consent. But is that meaningful consent when you're telling a 13-year-old, right, the minimum age uh, to be on social media is generally 13 for the Children's Online Privacy uh, Protection Act kind of kind of uh, restrictions? And uh, that also means that you're expecting a 13-year-old to, to read a legal document. I mean, they did have the parental consent in there, too. But uh, I think a lot of people are kind of calling BS on the current kind of s- system. They're saying – Yeah, everybody's busy. You're you're not really expecting the average person to read five legal documents a day. I mean, how many times do you click a little button? Lawyers don't read terms of service. Absolutely nobody reads terms of service. And I think that's been a uh, again like I I think this is the growing up of of tech. Uh, 2019 is, is the maturity of it where we're saying, okay, let's be real about it. Don't just tell somebody, "Well, you read the terms of service, didn't you?" Because you can call BS on it and say, "Well, nobody reads the terms of service." So, uh, so again, so again I, I think the bigger part that we need to focus on is getting all of these different groups at the table. Uh, and I run something called Authentic is Human that does that to to unite uh, technologists and uh, governmental kind of kind of bodies, advocates, artists, uh, academics, and and students. And and that's the the goal is that together even though yes we can disagree on certain issues but it's good to bring people together for for knowledge sharing to work on projects together to come up with collaborative kind of potential and, and, and that's frankly you know something that, that I think is
0: working so on your website you yes. uh, you mentioned a couple of concepts I would probably won't hit them all um, but you raised the idea of digital citizenship mm-hmm. Um uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you you yes. frame it only in positive terms, uh, which uh, I, I get your point, but I'll, I'll yeah. just raise the idea that all citizens are not inherently um, well-meaning right. in, a given, in a given society, but as you depict it, uh, this is the ideal. So uh, talk about yeah. that ideal. Sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the ideal is that we need to kind of pivot from being mere users uh, and passive consumers to being proactive and informed, educated empowered and engaged digital citizens. Uh, I launched a few years ago something called Digital Citizenship Summit, Uh, we kind of scaled that globally. We held a big uh, international event at Twitter headquarters uh, a couple days before the US election in in 2016 that brought together a lot of these groups. Uh, We were focused on misinformation before that became kind of a a trend. And to your point, uh, yes, it it can cut a lot of different ways. and, and, And frankly, I think that's why, a lot of these issues have been extremely complicated because we 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 don't agree as a society, especially in America, about what the internet should be, and that's that's currently being fought over. So, for example, uh, a lot of folks that I know and a lot of organizations might might kind of push people to say, okay, well, we need to be more empathetic online we need to be kinder online and that seemingly is a, is a very benign uh positive statement that you would assume everybody would say yes of course that's that's great let's do it but i notice every time that there's a campaign to say hey be kinder online uh there are certain segments of the of the internet that will push back on that and say well wait a minute like is that too restrictive from a from a speech standpoint sure and, and i think even to to your question kind of with digital citizenship that's why you need to have multiple stakeholders involved because it's such power that we cannot leave it up to one type of uh, ideology or one type of group. It needs to become dispersed. Uh, And my larger idea is that we need to create a structure that's the equivalent of what we would have for our political structure, because that's the type of authority we're giving over. I mean, we've transitioned in this, this country, the authority that we would traditionally have in a governmental body to decide something like, what is hate speech or what is uh, appropriate, allowable speech online, how we interact. And we have given that over to to social media companies. The great irony of that is is that uh, Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms, they don't actually want this power because that power, <laughs> that it wasn't a power grab. They were just given that because, well, our, our legislative body hasn't come up with something, it's the turtle in the hair, right? Technology is the, is the hair, and and our governmental bodies are the very slow-moving uh, tortoise. Uh, so they don't want that power, and and they're they're doing a lousy job with that power uh, because uh, you know they're they're making everybody upset. I'll give you a perfect example, right? If if a platform uh, comes out and says, "Hey, we're going to crack down on bad actors." Um, One part of the government says, great, that's what we want. We want you to go after uh, what we would view as hate speech. And then we would want you to go after misogynistic type of, of behavior. But then you have another part of the government that says, how dare you? Be the, uh, Arbitur, you know, the, yes. the arbiter, The and, and Zuckerberg, you know, has a statement along those lines, right? That you know, we don't, we don't have the ability to be the arbiter of truth. And I think that's the important part: is that the only way that we can have the, um, we can feel that we're we're successfully giving over authority, is if it is some level of uh, a, a governmental actor. So I, I think there's going to be a lot more involvement uh, in coming years. Uh, hopefully, with the United Nations uh, on a lot of these issues. I know that's always been a, a big issue: is how much of these these concerns that we have should be at a country-by-country country level, or or do we create kind of some kind of a universal standard? I mean, think about that, right? Facebook is is populated mostly with with Americans, yet we're trying to make decisions about free speech in in uh, Turkey. It's not very easy. Uh, one, you have governments that, that come back and push back on certain things, but you also have cultural differences that you might not, not naturally understand. And then you have the staffing issue of, of languages that, that is <laughs> extremely complicated to, to understand what might be considered uh, you know un- inappropriate or hateful in, in so many different kind of cultural kind of, kind of backdrops.